Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Jason Lemelson. Jason is a serial entrepreneur and retail consumer goods expert obsessed with bringing amazing products to market. He has close to 20 years of experience delivering impactful and beautiful products to the world's largest retail chains. Jason is currently the CEO of two consumer good businesses, Ubio Labs, which is a market leader in mobile accessories, and Filter, which is a medical supply company formed to address the acute shortage of PPE during the COVID crisis. Both businesses service large retail chains, are operating at scale, and have overseas operations in China. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much for having me, Shauna. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Now I want to get into China, but let's, I'm like, wait, how is that? A whole <laughs> other subject. Um, and then also the pivoting and the, the doubling down on PPE, like smartest move ever. Also something we're going to get into. But first, we're going to start um, with rapid fire. You ready? I am ready. Okay. If you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? Um, I would tell them um, to follow your heart and find our humanity again. <laughs> I, I love that. The timing of that answer could not be more true and more authentic. I love it. Um, what is your favorite way to stay healthy? Uh, definitely uh, weight training in the gym. Yeah. Good. Are you going to a gym right now? No, I built a big home gym uh, about four or five weeks ago, though. I have a, a couple of toddlers at home, so my gym routine has been uh, off track for a couple of years. But uh, yeah, when uh, COVID started, I built a huge gym at my house. Uh, That's the smartest. When people are saying that they're like way out of shape right now, I don't get it because I'm like, we have more time. We're at home and it's, it's such a uh, stress reliever. Oh, absolutely. That, like, that's awesome. And that's the yeah. best way to, I agree, to stay healthy. Yeah. This is a random question, but I'm like, what's your, what's your favorite go-to cereal? Um, I'm going to have to say shredded wheat oh. with frosting on it. Yeah, I was about to say, please don't say the boring oh, yeah. healthy. No, you got to have the frosting for sure. I agree. <laughs> it's the perfect amount of like soggy and crunchy. Yeah, and it's healthy <laughs> enough you can get away with it is the yeah. other good thing. Yeah, really I agree. Free in the end. I, well, that's good to know. I need to. I need to buy some. Not my like all brand. <laughs> Boring, lame. Okay, what is the best way that you would want to spend a rainy afternoon? Oh, probably sitting and reading a book. Actually, um, that's one of the the greatest challenges I have is finding time to read. Um, if left alone, I think I could sit in my house for weeks on end just reading consistently. Um, but so yeah, it's probably one of my favorite ways. Are you reading for pleasure or for like business or self-help or inspiration? Like what yeah, do you read? None of the above. So I, I actually read um, strictly nonfiction. I read an enormous amount of history, um, political science, uh, and I kind of go in waves every few years, but I spent the last two or three years reading an enormous amount of history. So I've gone yeah. through literally chronologically gone from the Mesopotamians um, all the way through um, say the fall of Rome. Um, oh, wow. Eventually. 
Yeah, so I'm pretty odd. And as far as business books, um, yeah, I don't think I've touched a business book in, in 15 plus years. Well, it sounds uh, like in, in researching you and, and your success, like you kind of don't need it. You've got your, you could write your own business book. Well, you know, I have been told that. We'll, we'll see what my future holds. But uh, yeah, I certainly don't find business books that interesting because just um, they're not deep enough, really. Um, yeah. You know, I did go through a couple of years ago and read an enormous amount on Warren Buffett, which was pretty fascinating. So that's probably the last series of uh books are related to business, which is the life of uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. And those yeah. are super interesting. But besides oh, that's that, awesome. I'm writing these down because I always love hearing and then creating a, a collective list of what people like to read. I think it does tell you a lot about people. Um, what is the last gift that you gave someone? Oh, well, it was just my anniversary for November. So um, got my happy anniversary. Some, uh, thank you. Come always some jewelry. So good husband. We just had I our try. anniversary also in November and I got some jewelry. I'm actually wearing it. It's Good a man. strategy. I mean, that's a, that's an easy one at the end of the yeah, day. You can't mess that up. I braved them all. I actually went to Bellevue Square, you know, donned all my PPE, made it happen. <laughs> <laughs> I told her, beyond the gift, I've risked my life to get this for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hopefully not a shield. You would be, I mean, I wore one, on, I, I did go on an airplane. I wore a shield. I was literally like the only person on the plane with a shield, but I did feel safe. So, um, okay. What, well, this question I'm going to skip. I was asking what you're currently reading, but maybe what are you currently reading? It is rainy. Oh, you know, I just started a book on the American industrialists, actually. Um, so a book on uh, Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, um, and a few others. And nice. so, yeah, it starts right at the depth of, um, of Abraham Lincoln and just talks about how they built their, their massive industrial empires. Wow. I could learn a lot from you. That is not what I like to read, but um, that's an, an very impressive. Um, speaking of impressive, what are you impressed by? Like, what impresses you? Hmm. You know, that is a good question. I guess excellence in all its forms. So I don't care if I'm watching a world-class gymnast, uh, a painter, a race car driver. What inspires me is people that have devoted their entire lives to achieving absolute excellence. Yeah, and, and that, kind of like that big go bigger, go home, like really yeah. double down on. Yep. On, yeah, uh, I mean, and if you think about what it takes to achieve excellence, it is no small feat. I mean, it's decades of intense focus, working harder than anybody else is willing to work. And yeah. I think that's one of the misunderstood things about people that are um, at the highest level of achievement is is how long they have taken to optimize their skill set and how long they took to get to that level of excellence. Yeah, and, and, and it, it, it doesn't much matter the field. Um, as long as someone is operating at that highest level, there's a lesson there and there's inspiration. Yeah. And if you could pursue excellence outside of business in any kind of field or interest or hobby, what would it be? Oh, absolutely. Music production. So yeah, my, my great love is producing music. So I've had a home studio for like 20 years and I uh, started my career way back in college in the music industry, as a matter of fact. Um, wow. And so I bought a studio shortly thereafter in my early 20s. And uh, at that time, I took it and I said, hey, I love this, but I looked at the um, realistic chances of succeeding and achieving um, in that industry. It's pretty tough. I didn't like the odds. It's and hard. So maybe, yeah, maybe it was a lack of courage. You know, I just figured in business, there were so many opportunities that, hey, I'd find something that I'd learn to do well and yeah. uh, learn to make a living. And I was never willing to take the risk in music. Well, it's not too late. It could be your like 2.0 or 3.0. Yeah, I've, I've been thinking about it. I mean, I spend a lot of time in my studio right now. It's like the ultimate pressure valve for me is the gym and the, and the music studio. Yeah. What kind of music? Of um, I actually do a lot of electronic dance music. Nice. EDM. Yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, we'll have to hang out post-COVID. 
for sure. I'm looking forward to hanging out with everybody post-COVID. I finally <laughs> started to go stir crazy. I was good for like the first nine months. Exactly, me too. I'm like, God, I'm craving like hanging and hugging and uh, connecting, you know, beyond the screen. Yeah. Who should get a send? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. A big steak. Um, yeah. So tell me more about you. Like, where are you from? I can already tell that um, we would have been friends and it's not too late now. I am it's very, nice I'm very drawn to you. So what, where are you from? And tell me about your, yeah, your, so, your I mean, childhood. I was born in, uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and then I uh, have been up in the Northwest here since I was about 12. Uh, between the time I was born in Phoenix and I got to college up here at the University of Washington, I want to say I moved like 15 or 16 times. So um, we were moving sometimes every six months when I was growing up. And so I've actually lived uh, quite a few places, had a, a fairly... Uh, uh, I don't know, I guess unstable childhood is one good way to summarize it. Uh, I actually had an opportunity to live abroad in Athens, Greece for a number of years and have done so, I think, three different times in my life. Uh, so I consider myself a Northwest uh, native at this point, being up here since I was 12. I've been up here uh, the longest of anywhere. Um, but at the same time, I spent, you know, up to half of my year in China for a number of years. And so oh, wow. I really China my second home. And uh, it's funny, all my, my Chinese staff there always tells me I have a Chinese soul which I always take as a compliment, given that. That is a compliment. And do you speak any other languages? No, you know, I, I tried to learn Mandarin early, um, and then I just gave up pretty fast. I said, yeah. you know what, I'm not going to master this, and they all speak English, so then I got super lazy. <laughs> I, I took Mandarin, of all things, in high school, and it is extremely hard, so it's I can the understand tones, that. they kill you, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll literally have their different tones, and then you'll listen to it and be like, okay, I can kind of hear a difference, but kind of not. And yeah. if you have the wrong tone, you could be really saying something you don't want to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so what does it mean to you when people say that you have kind of a Chinese spirit or soul? Well, I think what it um, reflects is the fact that when I approached going abroad, you know, the first time I went to Asia, I literally just jumped on a plane. I must have been uh, 25 or 26. And I actually went to Indonesia. And I had to find a flight that um, I could afford. Um, and that basically meant I had like five stops and 36 hours of transit. And so I Sometimes. had a little... Yeah, I had this little deal um, for a TV stand with Costco way back in the day, and it was a test order. And so I just jumped on a plane to Indonesia, never been to Asia, went by myself and landed in Surabaya. And uh, I ended up uh, sort of realizing very early that I was not looking at the roost of Western culture anymore. You know, if we go to Mexico, we go to Europe, we're looking at the roots of our own cultures as American, you know, Western culture. And I realized pretty quickly that I was looking at something distinctly different, that, you know, A, you've got the Chinese minority there, which is Eastern culture, and then you've got the Islamic majority, which is, again, an infusion of sort of um, East Asian, you know, um, culture with Middle Eastern Islamic principles. And so I realized I had to have a super open mind. And so I started studying the history of um, all these different cultures in the world. And so I guess when they say I have a Chinese soul, I guess it tells me I was successful at keeping an open mind, not being ethnocentric, and going in and really learning and understanding somebody's culture in depth. You know, yeah. to understand what drives the Chinese way of thinking, you have to start at the beginning. You have to start thousands of years ago and looking at their political structures. Uh, Confucianism is super central to understanding how they think uh, about social obligation and community. And so yeah. I think that is a big success, you know, because I've seen a lot of people go into Asia with a sort of colonial mindset that, hey, we're here to teach you how to do things. And that's right. probably a pretty big mistake. I think it's better to show up humbly and say, hey, I have a lot to learn here. No matter what I learn about this culture, I still will never understand them. Yeah, and there's so many, so many key takeaways. So when you say your childhood was unstable, is that just like speaking, ge ge uh, what's the word, geographically? 
or unstable because why were you moving around so much? Yeah, so you know, it was it was unstable in all ways. So yeah, certainly moving a lot is hard because you can't make friends, but really that was driven by just unstable parents, to be honest. And my um my father was an entrepreneur, um, always doing something new. He'd have, you know, successes one minute and then you know, we'd be in dire straits the next. So a huge amount of variability in the outcomes and the things he did. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, my mother's actually an immigrant from a very small village in uh, Crete. And so she oh, okay. grew up literally in a hundred square feet on dirt floors. Um, and so, uh, how did, how did they meet? Um, well, my mother did, uh, end up coming here. So she immigrated to the U S when she was 15. Um, and I think uh, they met when she was in her mid twenties. Uh, so she was ready here. Uh, mm -hmm. but you know, she left under pretty rough circumstances as you might imagine, you know, after, yeah. after world war two in Greece, they had a civil war for five years after that. So, uh, not a great place to be in the, uh, the late forties. Yeah. Well, and you so, don't have the Greek last name. And so, um, but you could go all different ways just based on your look. A lot of people are like, <laughs> depending on the country I'm in, think that I'm a native of that country. And so is her maiden name like a strong Greek last name? Oh yeah, Mandadanakis. Oh yeah, that one. exactly. <laughs> exactly. So are you being raised Greek Orthodox? Yeah, so I was raised Greek Orthodox. Well, I wasn't raised that way. I later went to the church as an adult. Yeah, my mother's yeah. Greek Orthodox. My younger siblings were raised. My mother had kind of gone back to the church at that point. Um, yeah. I went back as an adult in my mid-20s, as a matter of fact, and went and studied theology for a number of years. So I was pretty intense while studying theology and yeah. go and travel and stay in monasteries abroad and all kinds of crazy I, I feel like you're like, based on your story, I mean, you're young, but based on your story, I'm like, are you like 90? You've done so yeah, much. I hope so. Yeah, I, I get bored easily, so I have to continuously stimulate myself. And yeah. So I've done are, you, are you the oldest child? No, I'm right in the middle. I have uh, six siblings and I'm dead center. Oh, wow. Okay. So you didn't have the burden of an unstable childhood where you had to be the oldest and kind of feel that burden of like helping everybody oh, no, I along? Did. I mean, yeah, the older ones are step siblings. And uh, by the time I, um, my family sort of, um, I guess they really hit a wall really hard when I was in high school. You know, they had a, a business I was running and lost the business, lost our home subsequently. Um, so yeah, no, my, uh, my brothers immediately younger than uh, me and myself. Uh, we're certainly responsible for generating income for the family at a very young age. I mean, I want to say mm -hmm. we were 17, I was maybe 19. And yeah. so, you know, we had obligations uh, really, really early. And people would say, how did you learn to do what you, what you do? And I said, necessity. <laughs> yeah. And right? so are you, are you kind of, that makes sense to me. And are you kind of more driven by fear of failure or drive for success? And if, and, and if so, what does success mean to you? Yeah, and that's changed over the years. So I would say that in my early career, um, you know, in my 20s, it was absolute necessity. Um, I absolutely realized I had to outrun my past in many respects, not just financially and creating stability. I had to reinvent and discover what it meant to be a husband, a father, to have some semblance of family life that I envisioned that I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, so I would certainly say it was fear-driven for the early part of my career. Now, I think the most fortunate thing that happened to me is that my first business that really was successful happened pretty quick, and I was able to um, get out of the dire and immediate need. And what I learned at that stage was fascinating because I always thought, you know, I was doing this and if I could just put X amount of money in the bank or I could just get past this dire need, get out of the startup phase, that I would be happy all of a sudden. Mm. And that is the biggest lie of all. Your emotional happiness and the ability to create stable, loving home is unrelated to how much money you have in the bank. And that was a lesson I learned, you know, the first time I managed to put some money in the bank. And so yeah. I in the beginning, we're definitely fear-based. And then they've just been evolving over time as, you know, my own, um, sort of financial business changed, they're now starting to focus more on charity, giving, what do I do sort of post-career that isn't just all about another business. Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a significant portion of filter that has been about helping people. And we have a huge donation program 
Uh, I saw that. Paper. I saw that. It's super cool and yeah, very inspiring. Rewarding too. Yeah. You know, we started donating from minute one here. And so, yeah. yeah, the the reasons I do what I do are changing over time. Yeah. And it's ingrained, it sounds like, in the culture. But um, so it's it sounds like you went to UW and um, is that kind of one of those things that's in spite of your kind of troubled and sorted past? Like that's a hard school to get into. I'm not sure it was as hard 20 years ago. Though. I know. I uh, went there the too. And I'm higher. like, I think that we like filled out our application, like I'm in pencil and just kind of dropped it yeah. off. I know. No, yeah. it's true. It's I, mean, so it was, true. I think it was easier to get into, you know, I was like 20 some years ago now, 25 years ago. So I don't think it was as hard. Um, mm -hmm. And so um, I went to night school because I was, um, I was running my first business by the time I actually applied to business school. And so I went to night school because I was basically um, in the entertainment business and out all night. And so the idea of getting up was a virtual impossibility. Yeah. Um, but, and do, uh, yeah. do you remember what you wanted to be when you were in college or like what you're, what you were kind of fueled by? You know, I was kind of um, a counter-culturalist. I mean, I, you know, what I was taught in my home, um, there were some semblances of truth in that about independence, free thinking, think out of the box. Um, but yeah, when I was in college, I was kind of, um, my thinking was that, hey, most of the stuff I'm learning is not relevant to me. This is silly. If these professors could be doing this, they would be doing it, right? And, you know, I was in night school, undergrad, it's mainly TAs. Um, so I didn't really give a lot of merit to school, to be honest. I was always reading outside of what they assigned. And so a lot of the first couple of years, I didn't really go to classes. I would just sort of review the, the material yeah. for the tests. And so I did not take school seriously at all, to be honest. And then I ended up dropping out of my last quarter as well. I had a, a, a second business I had started that took off. Yeah. So I ended up dropping out uh, of the UW my, my last quarter, as a matter of fact. So yeah, I wasn't oh, wow. seriously. You know, I just basically partied and ran businesses and... <laughs> You know. Well, it, 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 somehow you made the right choices because look at you now. So I'm, I'm curious, given your dad's uh, background being successful and having failures, did that kind of scare you as far as pursuing being an entrepreneur yourself? No, not at all. It actually left me with that being the only option because I didn't have a model for going to work for somebody else, having mentors. And I wish I did. You know, mm -hmm. Have you ever worked for someone else? I haven't. I've never had a job, no. Um, oh my gosh. So I wish that I had actually, I wish I had taken the first three or four years of my career and went and um, got a job and learned from some mentors. So I didn't realize that you could learn an immense amount from mentors and that, you know, established companies that there was a lot to learn. Yeah. So I think that the, the fierce entrepreneurial spirit of my father was um, probably too fierce in the sense that he didn't put any merit in large companies or education or mentors. And so I think those things were sort of counterproductive uh, attributes that I had inherited that I had to get rid of later. And so those first five or six years of my career were pretty rough because I was my own worst enemy, uh, to be yeah. frank. And I think this like proper mentors would have really helped um, back then. Yeah. But I also sometimes think that you can learn the most from your failures, more than your successes. Um, yeah. I'm curious what kind of tactics and values you've carried with you throughout these various companies and, and throughout your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think if you look at the sort of um, different stage, I've actually founded seven companies. Um, oh my so gosh. And then uh, one of them was one of my parents' companies, which um, I wouldn't say I was a founder, but I was you know, one of three people that was working on the ground, making it happen. Um, so I would say early in the first half of the companies, I would say were my, my test companies, you know, small scale mm -hmm. companies, you know, four or five employees, you know, you get a taste of revenue, figure out how to do basic things like recruit and payroll and, you know, how to close deals. And so those practice companies, I would say the values there were not the right ones. I was um, overly aggressive. Um, and that was a lot of, I think, latent anger from various things in my, my youth and childhood. And so I was 
uh, aggressive to the point that it was counterproductive. So I was just yeah. a fool in a china shop. Well, especially because that's not, um, it sounds like they were all in Seattle and I've worked in different markets and the Seattle culture is not as aggressive. And so yeah, it's like what so might've been successful in New York or other markets sometimes can be a little bit different in Seattle, not so that's much. That's really true. No, I think that's true. I just think I was over the top for anywhere, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I was just vicious. You know, I always had this sort of success at all cost mindset, mm -hmm. um, which was not productive in my opinion. And then as I got a little bit older, I would say the, the last four businesses or about 15 years have been um, really, the culture has been rooted in honesty and integrity and really developing a team that is striving for excellence. And those mm -hmm. foundational principles have been part of, um, you know, my last three operating businesses, which have been, you know, 15 years of my life now. And so I think that, you know, really when you bring people in and say, hey, we're all about, you know, the highest bar, you know, we're going to win, but we're going to win fairly. And we're going to win with the work-life balance. We're going to win with the highest degree of integrity and honesty. And the way we're going to do that is we are going to be excellent in everything we touch. And excellence stands on its own. Um, yeah. It excellence is own. actually one of our values. And I haven't ever taken, and we've, we've defined it, um, but I think it's really important to keep yeah. it as a backdrop against which you're measuring kind of everything that you do. Well, measuring is the key, right? So, I mean, people love these words when they get recruited into one of my businesses. They don't necessarily like what it means day in and day out. Mm -hmm. Because to achieve excellence means that you have to get rid of all the superfluous stuff. You no longer have to be impressed by a complex flowchart and PowerPoint, right? That can no longer impress you because you have to ask yourself, what is the scope and what is the impact of the work you've just done? A, B, how does this dramatically enhance a consumer experience? And yeah. so it has to be measurable. And so when you start to measure excellence, that's where people start to squirm, I think. Because yeah. not that many people actually want to achieve excellence because it's painful. It is very, very difficult to be, un, to be displeased with every output and to just say, great, you did that, now let's raise the bar again. Yeah. Because excellence is about having it be visible from 100 yards away. You see excellence coming and you know it. But yeah. how to achieve that is the and How does that impact you as far as your management style? And would people who have worked for you say like, this is the toughest boss ever? Mm -hmm. Or given that you're honest and transparent and ethical, kind of make up for that kind of drive and push? Yeah, I think people have two experiences. So I've got a whole crew of people between China and my US offices um, that I've been with for, you know, between 15 and 20 years now. So those people are the ones that are all about excellence, transparency, honesty. Um, so I'd say one group of people loves the, the transparency, the drive for excellence, the idea that I push a company very hard. And uh, those people learn a lot and would become a very strong team. I mean, we are not, um, we're not separable as a team. You cannot. Yeah, it sounds like pretty unflappable. And uh, yep. when you have that type of leader and captaining the ship, it is easy to create that type of loyalty because I can just tell from talking to you, you have a strong personality, you're, you're clear in your conviction and people need that. People need that type of like direction and vision. Yeah, and that, um, that's the kind of people that are successful here, but there's a second group that, um, that cycle out pretty fast because they're the ones I think that have never been tested. They've always been in a big company. They've hidden in large organizations. Everyone applauds sort of basic things as opposed to saying what scope and impact look like. Mm -hmm. And those people have a harder time because when you, it kind of the emperor has no clothes on routine. Yeah. And how do you, how do you measure? Sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No uh, it's pretty easy because I'm, I'm always focused on um, very basic things. I don't, um, it's not easy for me um, to be sort of misdirected or for people to obfuscate the facts that matter and the, the, uh, the metrics that matter. 
And so in the end, you know, you sit with certain people that say, oh, I have this 20 year career. I came from these huge companies. What do you know, this founder running these little tiny companies by comparison? Mm. Um, and they reject this idea of excellence or they reject these ideas that there's some semblance of truth and simplicity. And that's one of the things I really took from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, right? And listen to Warren Buffett talk. Um, and now ask yourself, how many times have you sat in a conference room and listen to people talk and you're like, I have no idea what they're saying. Yeah. Um, when you don't know what they're saying, it's not you, it's them. Um, because yeah. real brilliance is simple. And you can see that in Bill Gates. You can see that in Warren Buffett. You can see it in Charlie Munger. They speak simply. You know, Jim Sinegal, the founder of Costco, speaks very simply. Yeah. Um, because excellence and, and true achievement is simple. And so that second wave of people reject some of these ideas and they end up cycling out. Yeah. Um, and so when I'm saying measuring, um, obviously internally, but how do you measure externally when you're recruiting people? Well, that, that becomes the hard part. I think that, you know, the best thing I can do is be straightforward and honest, tell them that this will be the toughest thing you've ever done. Just take everything you think you know and double the speed and then quadruple the actual output. And then we do that with one half the people. And if you want to learn how we do that, this may be the right place. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I started telling people it's like a mechanical bull now right? You can prepare all you want to get on a mechanical bull or an actual bull <laughs> until they open that gate. <laughs> You're flying off and hitting yeah. your head. And so I know that you've done some mentoring and um, kind of teaching at UW in the business school. What types of lessons are you teaching uh, younger folks and, and kind of lessons you've learned along the way? Yeah, I mean, I talk a lot about tactics in uh, those courses because I think that a lot of material they read is on strategy. And so even one of the classes I just did a couple um, sessions at was a strategy. I, I actually asked a professor if I could do tactics because I think that's kind of what's missing to some degree. And so on those ones, I kind of go into like five or six main principles that have worked for me in my line of work, um, beginning consumer goods. And so I can break those down and some of them are applicable outside of consumer goods, you know, things like, you know, real expertise. And that's always the first thing I talk about. Mm -hmm. And so I'll do deep dives on things like, what does it take to develop expertise? How did I develop it? And ultimately, you know, I make statements like, hey, when you're in an enormous amount of pain and you think you're going to break, you're actually, that's when you're getting towards learning and being an expert in something. Because expertise is painful. Uh, to get to true expertise, you have to walk through the poles. And how do you, how do you create expertise? Because you've been in so many different industries. It's not like there's a consistency. What does it mean to you? Like, what is, how do you do that? Yeah, so I would say the last 15 years have all actually been the same business, believe it or not. And they're the same business in the sense that we're doing something very simple. We are identifying a gap in the consumer market, determining that there is a meaningful set of enhancements that can happen, functionality or design-wise. Then we systematically bring a product to market at half the cost and twice the speed as competitors to fill that gap. Yeah, so I, I was yeah. actually thinking of supply chain. Like that seems to be also yeah, something to master. Yeah, it's also, yeah, all of the last 15 years of my life has really been um, consumer goods, uh, Chinese or Asian supply chain, national retail. And so there's common thread in all those businesses. We can repeat this process in any product category. And I've done it in hundreds of categories at this point. I mean, I've sold so many thousands of items to all the retailers. It's actually a process. And that process begins with that gap analysis in the market, then being realistic with you and your creative design and engineering teams as to do people care about this, right? That's the first criteria. If I build a better mousetrap, does anybody care? And that's a pretty tough question. Mm -hmm. And so how do you mitigate the risk you made a wrong decision? You find an early market fit fast. And so we actually sell product to the retailers at like design and render stage. And so we've already got the customers before we build the product. And oh, so interesting. Early market fit, yeah, it's a totally backward of every consumer goods business in the world. And that's- But it, it sounds like you've got um, pretty sticky and significant relationships with re retailers, which I know in itself is a really 
big feet. Like it's, it's really hard to get into Costco. Um, are, are there, yeah. are there any retailers that you can't get into or that you haven't been able to? No, not really. So if you look at my <laughs> electronics business, UBO Labs, um, last year in 2019, uh, in that single year, we closed Apple stores, Verizon, T-Mobile and AT&T. Um, wow, those are near ago. impossible. Just the, the yeah. sales cycle alone. Yep. One year we got them all because we said we were going to. And so wow. that um, expertise coupled with focus, that's always my second thing on the list is focus, right? You yeah. can't do 12 things well. Um, you know, Dyson builds a great vacuum, period. Um, and a great hair dryer, by the way. I do have a Dyson yeah, hair dryer for $400. I, <laughs> like, I own it. So yes, I'm aware of that, that gem. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> amazing. So what are the other, I guess you're, you're going through the tactics. You said two. And what are your other ones? Huh? Oh, I probably have a list of about 10, but I always start with, you know, real expertise and what does it take? And I, in those courses, I always like to go into my years on the ground in China. I mean, being in factories till midnight or 1 a.m. every night for, you know, all five years of the early career um, is how you build expertise. You know, going and visiting 50 retail chains a year traveling, you know, 60, 70 trips a year. Um, after 10 years of that, you have expertise. And it's hurt, it hurts, it's painful, um, but there's no substitute for it. Um, you know, focus is another one that is super, super, super crucial, is really, really focus your organization on its current mission at hand, and then measure results before you broaden scope is another big one that I love to touch base on. And so I have a whole list of things depending on which class it is, or what the audience is, they can get super granular on, yeah. um, on sort of tactics and how to make things happen. Yeah, I love it. And so um, what are your goals as far as like Ubia Labs? Um, and what has your experience been as far as any challenges that you've come up against? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the running a business is always a challenge. The challenges are daily. Um, you know, so Ubia Labs and electronics business today has got all the carrier channels that I just mentioned and Costco um, and Costco Canada, like 24,000 retail doors, uh, yeah. the third largest in the country. Um, we just expanded all of our product mixes into new categories. And so really, UBO has been all about managing growth with limited capital. So um, we certainly hit walls, um, short-term challenges. You know, like when we brought in our new VP product, I said, you know, we make about 15 to 20 unique SKUs a year for Costco and Costco Canada. Now I want to go off the carrier channels. And literally in, in an 18-month window, we built like 100 brand new items. And so, you know, this guy came in, he's like, Jason, you're crazy. How are we going to build a hundred SKUs? Yeah. And I said, Look, I don't want to talk about what's not possible. Why don't we back from a result and back into what would be needed to do it? And we mm -hmm. dissected the problem, right? And made it sort of super fundamental. You need an elephant one bite at a time. And so yeah. we developed a plan that was pretty granular. Um, and so the challenge at UBO has just been um, capital, right? I mean, we, I only funded the business with like $4 million. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, you know, we'll probably do 130 or 140 million in revenue next year. And that was four and, million. And total. it's obviously privately held. Yep. And, yep. and how many like co-founders are there? None. Yeah. So oh I'm always gosh. the founder of my businesses. Um, the only equity in any of my businesses are the internal team. So yeah, we don't use uh, external VCs, private equity groups, um, don't have boards of directors. Um, so we're, we're like benevolent dictatorships. Yeah, you, you really are <laughs> unique in that way. And so tell me about building relationships with manufacturers and suppliers. Like what, what do you do as far as a vetting process? Because I know that can be also like hit or miss. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, at the beginning of my career, before I had offices in Asia, I would spend a lot of time in China. So I would spend 17 to 18 days per trip there. And I would do that six to seven times a year. And so um, the first phase of like my two businesses ago, it was more of like I was running a reverse auction. I was looking for the lowest cost vendors. Um, I had a lot of vendor turnover. That was not very effective. You know, UBO Labs had a new strategy as does Filter, which is we wanted more like partnerships on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so our um, Asian operations today consist of sourcing, 
um, code of conduct and good manufacturing teams uh, and audit teams. And then we have significant quality assurance teams. So we have a really strict vendor approval process that all three teams have to sign off on. And so we go and source a broad range of vendors. And what we're looking for is the unique manufacturing capability, but really what we're looking for is alignment with senior leadership, having the company be the right size, right? You don't want like a $20 billion conglomerate where you don't matter and you don't right. want somebody who's too small. So we're looking for kind of mid to small large companies where we're a meaningful part of their business. We're looking for honesty, integrity in the leadership and really forming a partnership. And so when UBO Labs, I've got 80% of my product running through two factories. And those two factories, literally three quarters of their factories is dedicated to me. Oh, and so wow. we go in and we basically say, hey, here's a product line for next year. Yeah. They built an engineering team internally for us. Um, That's it's amazing. It's like a partnership. It's not yeah. like a traditional vendor relationship. And yeah. I'll tell you that the depth of those relationships has made UBO very successful because we've gone in sometimes and said, hey, you know, we have a special request. We need to not pay you, you know, three or $4 million for a month. Yeah. And literally just on a the verbal, they'll be like, oh, fine. And then conversely, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. And they, they do the same to me. They'll call me and say, Hey, we just have to buy all these components from Apple and they have to prepay um, from their supplier. Hey, can you guys loan us X millions of dollars? Yeah. And like literally we'll just like do that on an email and I'll send them millions of dollars on uh, and, uh, and they'll buy their components and say, we have a very deep level of trust. And that's why vetting the suppliers, my general manager in China is the same high degree of integrity that we are here. And, you know, I've been working with her for about 15 years now. Wow. And so it's just really trust-based, to be honest. It's a little bit unusual and it's contrary to most people's experiences, but you know, we produce amazingly high quality product consistently because we have aligned interests. Yeah. And so where do you source? I mean, is it all sourced in China? No, we also work in Vietnam as well. And mm -hmm. uh, we moved to Vietnam when the duties were put in place for um, various categories that we're in over the course of the last three years. And so we do have operations, but those operations are being run by our Chinese vendors. So mm. again, we'll go in and say, hey, we need to address this 25% duty in these two categories. Those stand-up factories in Vietnam will guarantee we're going to send X amount of business to those factories. And so we spent you know, a lot of time on the ground in Vietnam as well, understanding the dynamics there. And so, but mainly um, over the years, mostly coming out of China. And now we have some production in Vietnam just because of the duties, because it's a, a less efficient place to work than China. Got it. And so um, moving on, like, tell me about Filter, um, such an exciting company, your timing around all the PPE, uh, and obviously we have a ton of the Filter products in our home. Well, thank you. And, and they are superior. Um, so tell me about Filter. Yeah, Filter's a pretty interesting story. Um, and it's a story I hope to tell in full at some point because it's pretty unique. It's definitely a case study waiting to happen. You can um, tell it in full unless unless you... Uh... Well, if you want to do like a series of these things, well, absolutely. <laughs> um, so uh, Filter entirely came about by accident. So, you know, in January at UBL Labs, we just finished CES, um, had a bang up show, showing 100 new items, huge growth plans on the books for the year and COVID happens. And COVID for us started six weeks earlier because we have teams in China. Yeah, of course. And so we were following very, very carefully what the government policies were, the um, the R not or the you know rate of infection, um, the fatality rates, and then when we had to go back to work, um, my Chinese team reached out and said, "Hey, we can't get any masks here in China. Can you go buy some for us in the states and send them to us?" I'm like, "Oh, sure, right." We didn't have a single case of COVID yet, so I naively go down to Walgreens and CVS, jump on Amazon, and there's none. So I emailed my general manager, like, hey, I'm sorry, but there are none here. And we didn't even have a single COVID case yet. And so she had to go and source PPE to open our office and to help open our factories. And so at that moment, I realized, A, this was coming here when I started looking at the spread in China. Um, 
The second thing is that a quick um, Google search indicated that 90% of PP was made in China. And 90%, by the way, is in the Hubei province, which was shut down initially. Uh, and that when it came here, I did not believe we would have as coordinated a government response, that it would not be under control, and that somebody would need to supply enormous sums of PPE to safeguard American lives. And that was the fundamental um, basis of the business is that, you know, I found it at the beginning of March. I was working on it in February, literally before the first COVID case in the U.S. And so um, I just had this idea that this was going to be rampant and that someone was going to need to supply billions and billions of units of PPE and it was all going to come out of China. Yeah. And so the first wave of filter was really all about N95s. You know, I had this huge team in China. Um, everyone here was desperate for them back in March and April. And that's where we started was we went to all of the N95 vendors in China understood the testing compliance requirements. I just reapplied on my electronics engineers and, and compliance people. And we were very early to market at um, a number of places, but we were in contact with all the states. You know, I was talking to um, people on in FEMA early, um, state of New York very early. So I was kind of in that mix very, very early. And I was hoping to have a bigger impact than I did initially, um, which is probably a whole separate discussion as to why. <laughs> but yeah, so Filter was really an accident. And then uh, when we oh, called wow. them at Costco, I originally called them because I realized they were going to have to supply masks to their customers and to their employees. And this was long before their policy. And so I called in and I said, yeah, we're working on that already. Um, and then like a day later, I got a call from an SVP, which I have to say is a vendor to Costco. I've been selling them for 20 years. You don't really work above the buyer level. You may get one level above a buyer, not five levels above a buyer. And so I'm thinking to myself, why is an SVP from Costco calling me? And it was a fascinating call because it, it really cemented, um, not that I needed it, but it cemented in my mind that they are the most ethical company in the world to this day. They called and said, we have a wholesale division that sells into hospital channels, which I had no idea. And they oh, said, I didn't know that. Yeah, they have a volume purchasing department, which I did know. But what I didn't know is they were supplying through their pharmacy department a number of hospital chains, um, the largest in the country. And they simply said, I heard you're trying to get masks in. That's not what I want to talk to you about. What I want to talk to you about is our moral obligation to get N95s to the front lines. And he said, tell me about your people on the ground. How do we do this? How do we get it done? And so this was a moral imperative that came from the C-suite. And so that was the first call. And so the whole first six months of Filter was not about being a commercial enterprise. I just said, you know, here's my people on the ground. Um, here's what I can build for you. And what we ended up building was a giant test facility. So you can't test masks without specialized equipment and you can't tell them apart. The filter membranes in them are not visually different. It could be filtering zero and you wouldn't know it. And so mm -hmm. we went and bought um, all the test equipment. We built huge uh, packing and test lines out so we can test every single unit we buy. And so that was built in conjunction with this Costco program where I said, look, I'll build these facilities for you in China. I will validate the quality. You know, we hired compliance people that knew the medical industry and our aim day one at literally zero margin for Costco and near zero for me was simply get N95s to the front lines and save lives. Yeah. And so all the compliance and QC work we did was all around the context of these are people's lives at stake. Mm. And so it was kind of an accidental business, but it was really driven out of purpose. I mean, I wasn't thinking, hey, let's build a business out of this. Uh, and so once we got that going, uh, then it turned out that Costco decided to carry it in store. And so once that happened, um, we built these huge facilities out, had trust built, um, had done a bunch of transactions already in N95s, and we were awarded all of the PPE in line. And so we have seven pallets. Uh, and so Filter's fascinating in the sense it was purpose-built, never intended to be a commercial enterprise. You know, it was started just by yanking all my electronics people into this. 
So I broke out the companies in, uh, I want to say like May, so another two separate companies and filter, you know, today I want to say 75 people, which was staffed over less than 90 days. Um, and as I guarantee you, the fastest company to our revenue in the history of business, uh, knowing what the other fastest. Wow. And what, what are these 75 people doing? Like, how do you break them down? How many are in the factory? And yeah, most manufacturing. So, yeah, there's actually thousands downstream in the factories we subcontract with, but um, the 75 um, are here in the U.S. office, which do sales, marketing, finance, and operations, you mm -hmm. know, routing freight and selling product. And then in China is where we have most of the people, and they are QC and compliance. And so we've got 30-some quality assurance people. Wow. Um, we have test labs that we run, our own internal labs that are basically world-class labs, better than what they have here in the States by far, and we run them internally. Uh, so yeah, a lot of compliance, QC, testing people. Wow. And the funding of it, I'm sure that came from um, yourself and others, a no VC. No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, it's interesting. At the very beginning, we had, um, and the financing is a very interesting one here because the, the factories require prepayment in this industry. So you can't normally, like normally you go over there and you build a relationship, you start ordering small quantities, you negotiate terms, and over time you're on standard terms. The PP business is so crazy, it's all cash up front. And so oh. we have to come up with enormous sums of money and you'd be allowed to hit a wall. All the retailers closed in March, our revenue dropped to zero. And I literally at one point took every dollar we had and I sent it to China in advance um, to buy N95s. And is that on contracts or is it like handshake or combo? Of no, there was a contract, but the contract was not between my company and the Chinese vendor because they did not want to sell to America. So I had one of my electronics factories open a new company. Mm. She bought them on our behalf so we could obfuscate the destination because they didn't want to sell as long as we're on TV calling it the China virus. And wow. so part of the reason we couldn't get PPE is, you know, keep, keep insulting them and see if they'll sell to you. And so we actually have to use an intermediary, but I literally sent them um, millions and millions and millions of dollars um, and did not know if I was going to get product. And had it not worked, I would have bankrupted both companies. And I remember oh when I called gosh. my wife said, hey, you know, she was aware of everything going on. It was, you know, I was working around the clock. We all understood people were dying. You know, the nurses were on TV begging at this time frame on CNN in April. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. And if it doesn't work, like both companies are done. It's uh, it was literally all the chips on the table. And, oh uh, my gosh. Yeah, it was pretty extraordinary. And so that first shipment of N95s, we go and we get a million plus units and they're all counterfeits. Um, oh we tested my them, they gosh. weren't real. Yeah. So I literally have to call Costco and say, hey, you know, I have pictures of the containers being loaded. Everyone was so excited. And it was very subtle and nuanced differences in these products. I mean, it took true experts to see the difference. They just oh did not my gosh, supposed to. Well, and back to your integrity and honesty, though. I'm sure that they double down because of their business model and their mentality around their values. Yep, it's, it's going to make them be like, yeah, no you could have known. easily nobody would have known. Nobody would have known. Um, and, and I remember so, that SVP. Yeah. I called him and he said, Jason, he's like, are you going to get your money back? And I said, I don't know. Did and they? Said, no. Did they fund it at all? Did Costco put any money in? Um, you know, I'm not sure I want to answer that very specifically. What I'll say is that um, the, the company was capitalized with about 40 million in outside funding, non-VC, you know, um, local group of investors that are just debt. Uh, and then we did have customer premium payments involved. Wow. Uh, yep. And so, so you've got the, you start with the N95s. And since then, we're talking general masks that you're selling, uh, kids masks, infrared thermometers, face shields. Like, yep. is that, does that all require its own separate um, kind of equipment, obviously? Yeah, so what's sitting behind us in Asia is dozens of factories. And so like just the shields alone come from five or six factories because the quantities we make. 
And so wow. I just did the math the other day. In the first five months we've been shipping, we shipped nearly a billion individual units of product. Um, oh my God. Yeah, something like 700 million face masks have been shipped in from filter into the United States. Um, and so there are dozens and dozens of factories behind us. And so we ship everything into our packing lines. We test it, pack it, build pallets at scale. You know, and, and back in uh, July and August, you know, our peak shipping months, we were shipping 100 sea containers a week. Um, so oh, just my goodness. And so, yeah, there's dozens of factories sitting behind us. Um, yeah. And, and how many people do you have um, in your corporate office? Like, what does that infrastructure look like? Oh, and does it, does it overlap with, with Ubio? Nope. They're totally separate now. Yeah. So a filter in the U.S. office here, I want to say is like 31 to 32 people in total. Wow. Yeah, and it's, and how many of them are doing sales and biz dev trying to get into other retailers? Or is that all coming from you? Yeah, no. So we have a sales team. So we have, um, we also service Target and Best Buy as well. So the three customers for filter are those three. And then we've sold some states. Um, we do have a government group now that I just brought in. And so they're working on selling the government. And so now we're chasing down the, the dire nitro glove shortage. And so the, the big wall we're about to hit is nitro gloves. The U.S. Um, National Reserves have literally hours of supply on him. And they have nothing. And so we've lined up, you know, six glove vendors. I think we contacted 300 between Malaysia, Thailand, um, Vietnam, and China, scouring the globe. We did find five vendors. Um, so that's our current project right now is the nitro glove uh, issue, which is a biggie. But yeah, we do have a, a government sales group. Majority of the people here are really accounting and operations, routing trucks and planes. Uh, and I would say half the team. But I've also got, you know, head of um, compliance and regulations here product development staff, product marketing staff that does all the packaging and palette designs. Wow. And so, yeah, it's a very skinny team up for the size of business we are. Yeah. I love that you're so, I mean, maybe you're not calm. I'm sure internally you're like spinning, but, but your external clarity is so unique. Um, it really is like your, your kind of ninja skill, just being like, I, I'm clear. I know where the need is and I'm going to, I'm going to double down and get after it. I like to aim, you know, some people yeah, say, clearly. You know, measure twice cut once um i always like to tell people hey we're gonna aim here and so yeah i don't put up with a lot of sort of maybes and ifs i'm like get the data let's understand what we're doing let's make a plan and then yeah. measure that plan i'm pretty linear in that sense um you know certainly when i get the product design and like ubo i'm emotionally driven because it's you know we're trying to make a beautiful emotive product yeah here, that's not what we're doing what we're doing is filling a dire need with the highest quality product where people right. are state so right, and it's, it's kind efficient. of like we're either doing it or we're not. It's yeah, not and, very and, great. Yeah, and we decided day one, we're going to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. There's a lot of bad actors in this industry, let me tell you. And this is a zero trust industry. And oh, uh, lots of stories about that. Nobody trusts anybody. Yeah. And so day one, you know, like we, we market, you know, medical grade masks to the general public. And they will pass, you know, the highest level of testing to get, you know, 510K approvals from the FDA. And they could be used in an actual operating room. Yeah. That's the level of product that we sell because at the end of the day, not doing so implies that not everybody's lives uh, requires that level of product, right? And that's right. not a, a decision we're willing to make. So right. yeah, day one, we said we're going to be part of the solution for real. And what that means is that we're either offering the best possible product that money can buy at you know reasonable prices that are accessible, or we're not going to play. I mean, we will not be part of the problem. There's enough yeah. problems with COVID and how we got here. <laughs> and how have you been thinking about the impact on the environment of these masks yeah, so we have been thinking about it. Um, we've done some research studies. You know, they are made out of polypropylene, um, which is technically recyclable. And so to the extent that you were to remove the elastic ear loops, the body of the material, all three layers is polypropylene and can be recycled. So we can put it in our recycle at home? No, not so simple. Um, 
the problem is because if you've worn it, it is technically biohazard, mm. right? So the problem is actually in the U.S. recycling infrastructure. They are technically recyclable. I don't think you would want to just put them in your recycling because I think the recipient on the other end doesn't have the proper equipment to receive it and process it. Mm. And so, yeah, we have talked about that a lot with people, um, that it is technically recyclable. How many of the U.S. recycling plants can handle polypropylene is unknown to me. Um, but you would have to have, I think, a biohazard um, supply chain if you mm. want to be safe about it and yeah. say, you know, how would you collect these things at scale? And then which facilities in America could actually recycle them? Um, but it's technically feasible. It's just not a solved problem right now. Yeah, interesting. And so I know that you've extended your like big commitment to giving back. Mm -hmm. um, how did you choose which organization? Um, I researched it, Millions of Masks for Children mm -hmm. campaign. What yep. is that exactly? Yeah, so that is, um, it was kind of serendipitous, actually. I was talking to somebody who was part of a, a different charity in town here, and their mission was to try to help the states do demand planning for their PPE needs. So the states and the local governments, um, their procurement process pre-COVID doesn't really work post-COVID uh, for a number of reasons. It's just a broken supply chain coupled with a broken procurement process. So they were working on solving that. And so they were talking to us as a potential supplier to the states um, in the course of that conversation, they mentioned they were trying to get a donation program running. So I immediately changed the topic and said, hey, we've been looking for somebody to receive our donations. We've been donating from day one. And I said, look, you know, um, they said, we want to do a million masks for kids. And I said, done. And they were like, what? I said, yeah, no problem. Like, I'll give you a million right now. Uh, you figure out the last mile, how to get them in the hands of kids in need, and I'll give you as much product as you need. And so millions wow. of masks for kids arose out of that conversation. And so Jang um, is the person who runs millions of masks for kids. And so she handles all the last mile. So she started the initiative. Um, she brought in SmartAid uh, as another resource. They're, uh, uh, I believe they're based in Israel. And uh, she is the one that handles all the relationships last mile. And so, so far we've donated 3 million kids masks in the last like, I don't know, eight weeks or so. A uh, million yeah. bottles of kids sanitizers and more coming. And so that initiative is really something I think mean, it's just important to all of us that, you know, anybody that reached out to me from February forward, um, doctors or hospital chains, we just donated, you know, and, so they would say, hey, I've got four hospitals in, in Ohio. I can't get anything. We would just send them thousands of N95s. And they would send us videos back and like the nurses cheering. So we've always had a giving component here because we realized that um, we couldn't reach everybody. We couldn't sell to everybody. The, the like our supply chain is geared towards big customers. Um, but we certainly could bring in lots of extra product. And everyone knew that if you just emailed me, if I had product, I would send it out. Yeah. And so we, it was kind of word of mouth initially. And I think on the, the millions of masks for kids, the idea is that, you know, there's a lot of underprivileged kids that were already struggling. Um, they relied on the school districts to provide meals. Totally. Uh, the parents relied on those kids going to school to go to work. Totally. So, yeah, it's a big always, problem. It is going to be um, a conversation going on for a long time. Is that I we agree. have the income disparity, the wage gaps already, the underprivileged in this country are already. Um, it was a widening gap, and now all of a sudden you have a gap that is probably going to be double uh, what it was prior to COVID. Yeah. You know, all the kids that are in certain areas just, oh, parents gave them a laptop, gave them an iPad, they're in virtual schooling. Uh, that's not possible for a lot of people in America. And so that's why we wanted to attack that is that, um, you know, and there's a lot of great organizations working on sort of filling the gap in just, you know, basic nutritional needs, right? Is that, and I think they're months now waiting to sort of fill that gap because they were, I think 25% of school kids relied on meal programs to mm -hmm. get them pay, and that dropped off. And so at the very least, what we can do is um, get millions of masks out there for kids that can least afford them, which is what we're doing. And yeah, so millions amazing. of masks for kids handles all the last mile for us. So we just basically say, hey, we'll bring in a million units. Where do you want them? And they, they just did an event last week in Utah. 
you know, the first million was up here in Seattle. We gave uh, a bunch to Washington State, Children's Hospital, University of Washington Medicine. And then she lined up, you know, um, a bunch of the tribal and minority groups um, that received donations. And then I want to say YMCA was in there, Boys and Girls Club. And so she's actually done all the hard work. I just bring in container loads and deliver to her. And so we've got the third million showing up uh, first week of February. And so I that's think that's incredible. Pretty, and that'll be handled by the Red Cross, I believe. So they're doing distribution in California. So now that California has sort of got this huge outbreak, we're focusing on getting stuff to California. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a simple initiative. It's just we're in a position to help, and we are. It's kind of simple as it is, really. Always amazing and inspiring. And I don't think enough people think like that. Um, you know, just the giving back part ingrained into a culture. And I think it's an obligation. It is an obligation. I've learned a lot about human nature during Filter. I thought I'd learned what I needed to know in business, but I was proven wrong. Filter um, has taught me a lot of lessons I wish I had not learned, <laughs> I tell you. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, just in, in interviewing you alone, obviously you're high energy, you're focused, um, and, and it sounds like going into your production studio and working out help you kind of decompress and relax. Um, but I'm curious if you have kind of a spiritual practice. Um, you know, I used to. Um, you know, I don't necessarily anymore. You know, certainly I studied theology for a number of years pretty in depth. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's why I brought it up, because I, I heard you yeah, say that at my, the beginning. And my brother is uh, an Orthodox priest, as a matter of fact, so I spent a lot of time in seminaries. Um, one of my like most amazing trips I ever made in all my travel was to uh, Istanbul, and I went and stayed in a monastery off the coast of Istanbul, which has very significant historical um, um, sort of issues there for the Orthodox. You know, Istanbul used to be Constantinople, which was, you know, the sort of head of the Byzantine Empire and the, the sort of head of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So yeah, I used to be very deeply engaged. And I will say that I think all those years, I took a lot of lessons from that. Um, and certainly there's a lot of wisdom there about the heart and the soul that is not found any other place. It's certainly mm -hmm. become part of who I am. Um, today, I'm not actively attending um, church anymore and actively engaged in that life. But I, I certainly think all those principles and values are present and are manifesting themselves in different ways in my life right now. Yeah. And uh and ultimately, I think a lot of my recharging also, you know, I mean, the, the studio and, and working out is kind of self-checked. You can also have, you know, two toddlers at home and an amazing wife that are really uh, my foundation. You know, in the end, yeah. since my wife, you know, it's gets about nine years ago now. My life has just been uh, infinitely better than prior to meeting her. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. Wow. You're earning points between the jewelry and the podcast. <laughs> like, I'm sure she'll listen to this. Oh, everyone um, in my company hears about it nonstop. They're always like, my God, this guy, George, his wife. It's like nauseating. <laughs> we don't want to hear about it anymore. <laughs> no, that's she's so sweet. Woman, though. That's amazing. Well, that doesn't surprise me. And so what kind of values would you say that you're bringing into your family? And are you deliberate uh, about that? It sounds like you are. I would say that um, we are deliberate. Um, you know, and I will also say that, you know, I, I was raised by a, an ethnic mother from Greece. I lived in Greece for many years, um, deep in the Orthodox community for a long time. Um, and so I've got a, a, a cultural set of values that are present. You know, I was raised mostly in America, but my value system really, I think, was more formed by um, Greek Orthodoxy and, and the sort of Greek way of looking at the world. My wife is actually an immigrant as well. Um, she's from Iran, as a matter of fact. Oh, so is my husband. Okay. Oh, wow. Does yeah. she make the, does she make the Tadiq? She does. Yeah. Well, when my mother-in-law is in town, that's when things get serious. Yeah. Uh, same with my mother-in-law. I'm not allowed like, to go anywhere near the kitchen when, when, yeah. her, when my mother-in-law is here, you know, they, yeah. they got. That's exactly. And my kids are so happy. I'm like, I'm sorry. I can't deliver the same thing. It's like a yeah. seven course and it's just natural for her. She's like, well, I've been doing this for 30, 40 years. And I've never seen a meal harder to make than a Persian meal. I mean, yeah. my Lord, they'll spend 10 hours in there. 
Um, I know, I know. And that's, and it's a happy place. It's a, it's a big part of the culture is around food, actually most cultures, but especially the, the Persian culture and, um, and around music, yep. which I love. Yeah. yeah. We've got a lot of cultural values in my home. And so, mm -hmm. you know, how do you look at it? Two very ancient cultures. I mean, Greeks and Persians, I mean, these are very ancient cultures that have um, set ways of thinking about things that uh, I would say are opposed to the prevailing views in America, to put mm -hmm. it safely. Well, and very much centered around the family. Yep, yeah, family, a little bit more traditional values. And my wife didn't come here until she was 14. And oh, so wow. And raised in, in uh, Tehran until you're 14 has an impact on your view of the world, on your Oh, belief. huge. And so she speaks Farsi, obviously. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And are you teaching the kids Farsi? You know, I wish she would. Um, she does speak to them in Farsi, but you normally know when she's angry. Uh, yeah. My kids, my kids only know Bastani, which is like ice cream. <laughs> yeah, she's screwing up a storm in Farsi, and I'm assuming neither of us want to know. The kids nor I want to know what she's actually saying. But I was told the other day she should actually speak to them in Farsi more often because their, you know, their minds are sponge right now. <laughs> oh yeah, I know. I'm like tell my husband. I'm like I really wish we had had when we were in New York raising the kids the first uh, several years as toddlers. Uh, their grandparents spoke Farsi to them a lot. And then of course they've forgotten a lot of it and I've forgotten a lot of it because I just picked it there up though. naturally. Yeah, no, it's, it's there. there. It's if somewhere in there. In Greece, I mean, I, I'll tell you right now, I, I'm not conversational in Greek, but you get me there for like two weeks and it all comes back. It's, yeah. it's there because my mother spoke to me in Greek as a child. And mm -hmm. so it's there, it's there. I mean, hopefully we can travel next year. I'm turning 50 and um, I have Greece on my, on my bucket list. I've never been. Oh. And I'm dying to go. And I have a few Greek friends who have given me the kind of off the beaten track little islands to check mm -hmm. out. And I just cannot wait to go. I hope it's next year. Um, I but so I will too. be going within the next few years for sure. Yeah, and you've islands. been to some really cool places. Um, I'm sure that travel is on your list of uh, first thing you'll do oh, besides, so besides the, you know, hugging. Yeah, yeah, I miss it a lot. I mean, I, I do I too. Extensively, I mean, all over the place. And I would go to the ancient sort of hubs of the world because I'd go read like history, and they'd be like, "Oh, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm going to go to you know Athens. I'm going to go to Istanbul." Yeah. So you know, have a little historical um, sort of information about where you're at. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, so, makes, yeah it's it's, makes it makes it so most. much richer. And so, are there rituals that help keep you grounded and focused? Like I've asked people that, and some people are like, "Yeah, no, I work out," or I you know, have my gratitude practice or, you know, whatever it is, I drink my, you know, coffee. Yeah, I mean, I'm a creature of habit. I mean, I, I, I'm a super early riser. Um, you know, I would say about seven, eight years ago, my lifestyle got really sort of um, clean, if you will. I mean, I was going to say, are you going to say clean? Yeah, and I don't drink. I mean, it's not like I try to stop drinking. I just, it just isn't part of my life. You know, I have to have such a hard It slows you down. Yeah, it does. It slows you down. It, it um, sort of clouds your mind. So yeah, I mean, I just, I sleep well, work out, you know, spend a lot of time with the kids I do my best to eat healthy. I'm not, I'm probably the worst thing I do is how I eat. Um, but yeah, just read a lot. I'm, That's I'm a hard one. Routines, uh, but I'm pretty set in my ways in business as far as um, what principles I run a business by, what we're trying to achieve. And that's very clear in both businesses. I think everyone can always tell you what are the top three things. You know, every day I get up and I spend the first morning, hour and a half, two hours in the morning by myself. I get to like 4.30 to 5. And that's when I'm just like, the only quiet time I have is that hour and a half before the kids get up, before work starts. Um, because then after that, it's all devoted to like my team during the day. And then, you know, afternoon and evening is all about my kids and wife. And so that's my alone time. So I do need that couple hours of silence and I get it really early. And so as a result, I go to bed early. So I mean, it's a pretty simple lifestyle, really. Just go to bed early. Don't, you know, put garbage in your body. Um, work yeah. out, get up super early and think about your day. 
you know, every day I have lists. I mean, outside of our product management system, I write down my list because I did something tactile about writing that commits it to memory. And if I have a list, I'm going to get down with that day. I'm just hyper-focused that here's the five things I must get done today. Yeah. Uh, and I know what that wow. is every morning by 5 a.m., like what my key focus is going to be. And then I just go about the day of being as efficient as possible as getting through that. You know, don't let people distract me. And so I think time management when you have two companies is kind of key. Oh, yeah. You, you can't have like people just, you know, barging in or. Well, especially uh, when you're working with uh, international geographies, you, your hours are probably all jacked up and all confusing. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, we have our calls with Asia, our Chinese office at like four or five, depending on daylight savings time. So I'm usually done by, you know, five or six. I uh, try to make it so, so I can have dinner with the kids every night. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, just kind of a rule-based life that, hey, here's what I'm going to get done. This is what I'm leaving. Um, you know, I started having people like schedule, you know, they do hour meetings by default. And I'm telling them, hey guys, like nothing is really worth an hour, right? Generally. Like, Except for this podcast. This one's where we're going to do two or three more in the end. So it's probably four hours worth. But, exactly. Um, I know we haven't even scratched the surface. Like you are fascinating. Oh, like for real. My, my ultimate question that I ask everyone at the end is what fuels you? Uh-huh. Um, what fuels me right now is a work in process. I am no longer satisfied with just success in a business, if that makes sense. So, you know, once you're into your fourth or fifth business, that will have really good financial results, high growth rates, um, highly effective teams. You know, you start to look at it and go, Hey, this kind of feels like groundhog day, you know, like launching yet another consumer good into a big retailer is not that interesting anymore to me. Looking and standing back and saying, you know, you got these businesses, they provide great products, they're profitable, lots of people are employed. Yeah, of course, all that's great. Um, but I'm actually trying to define what the next phase of my life is all about, you know, because Filter is so big. I mean, it's literally 10 times the size of UBO Labs in months. Uh, and so at some point, I'll tell that full story, uh, how big the company is so fast. I mean, it's crazy. After that, like, what else can I do at this point? Um, and I'm starting to really ask myself that question, what will drive me moving forward? And I don't think it's going to be business. I think it's going to be some combination of how do I make an impact? How do I teach um, people what I know, share my experiences because they're, um, they were hard earned, <laughs> if you will. And I rather someone else learn from my mistakes than have to make yeah. their own. Uh, yeah. And the last part is how do you make the world a little bit better place than how you found it when you're done? And yeah. launching another piece of electronics into Verizon or Costco is not going to achieve that goal. And so this, you know, some new friends I've made through Filter because it's attracted some different kind of people. And these are the things I'm talking to them about is, you know, what does life look like after this, right? There's a vaccine now, you know, how long, maybe a year more we're going to be in this business, which is great. You know, happy to shut the damn thing down after COVID's done. Um, but what comes then? And I actually don't have an answer for you right now. Yeah. It's going to have yeah, that, meaning, though. It's not going to be another dollar or another product. Well, I love that. And I think that that's such a sign of maturity and very clearly represents your values and your ethics and um yeah i'm super huge gratitude to you for being on the podcast oh it's my pleasure absolutely yeah. i love stuff like this so i appreciate the opportunity thank you for listening to the what fuels you podcast be sure to subscribe rate and review on itunes google podcasts or spotify and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes you can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.